The word of God from Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Altogether, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the God stand forever. As we pray. Heavenly Father, we commend this time to you. We give you ourselves. We give our attention fully to um, your words. Uh, we um, open our hearts to your spirit to teach us uh, something new. Um, humble us. Um, warm us. Warm, that's what we want. Warm us with your love, even as we study your word. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Ronnie. Uh, so today, we're starting a new sermon series on Mark. So for about 16 weeks, we're going to be studying through most of this sacred book. And if you're new here, well, you're kind of stuck with us for 16 weeks. Like, you have to keep coming back. It's like the rule. But we're glad you're here. You know, whenever um, someone starts reading uh, or beginning to study the Bible, it's important to understand like the historical and literary features of it. Um, and the reason why is because when God gave us his word, he gave it to us in time and space, right? It has a context. Now, you know, you can contrast that with like horoscopes or, you know, um, uh, like uh, Chinese fortune cookies, right? When you read those things, they have no context, right? There's nothing that tethers them um, to that moment. The Bible, on the other hand, is like this beautiful love letter, but it's a love letter that's mediated through ancient cultures, and so sometimes we need a little help unpacking it, right? And so since this is our very first sermon on Mark, I'm going to spend a little bit of extra time in this first sermon Help, to help us get our brains around it. Uh, and as I do, there's something I have to establish up front. The gospel of Mark is not about Mark. 
The Gospel of Mark is about, is really the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and let me explain. In our society, the word gospel is a very religious word. To my knowledge, Christians are the only ones that use the word gospel. But in the first century, it wasn't a spiritual word at all. It was a political or a regal word. Gospel, as many of you know, literally means good news. And it was used in a context of reporting the news of victory from a battlefield. All right? Uh, or maybe it would be like an edict of a cessation of a war, or a pronouncement over a conquered region that would introduce to that, that, that conquered people a new ruler. And, and even in some cases, it would be like when a new emperor was born, a gospel would be decreed across the land, okay? So that's how this word gospel is used. And so as often was the case, the arrival of a new emperor would then mark the beginning of a new era, a new epoch or epoch, uh, particularly when that emperor took office. So a king would be so pretentious as to organize time itself around this king's reign. So listen to this gospel. This is a real gospel in the first century. It's an inscription found in, the, in a Roman province celebrating the Emperor Augustus, who was actually born in September, so just a little FYI there. But this is the, the, this is the Gospel of Augustus. It reads like this. It is a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything, inasmuch as it has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar Augustus had not been born to the common or universal blessing of all men. And the decree resolves that, whereas the providence, think God here, God Whereas God, which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving it to Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and those who come after us. Wild, right? Incredible hubris. So the early Christians, right, they took this highly charged political word and said, gospel, I'll show you gospel because Caesar's got nothing on Jesus. And so Mark presents to us a new gospel, the arrival of a new king, a king whose kingdom has become the new frame of reference for the whole universe, right? So John Mark, the writer of this gospel, says that the world's rightful king, the promised one, the anointed one, has come. And so this first chapter, as I'm going to explain shortly, depicts the Messiah's coronation ceremony, in other words, the king is anointed in chapter 1. Now, before we uh, proceed, it's important for you to understand 
that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, right? This is news. This is an announcement, all right? So this is something, it's announcing something that has happened in time and space in history, right? You are not making Jesus the king. Jesus is the king, right? He is the king. The question that we're going to uncover as we study Mark's gospel are these. Well, what is this king like? What is the nature of his kingdom? What does it mean to be a subject of the king, right? So there's so much packed in these 15 verses that we just heard. I'll try not to wear you out. You know, introduction sermons are a little bit difficult. But as, uh, as we do, I want to direct us in three ways. First, we're going to look at this passage at like 10,000 feet. And then we're going to look at it at ground level. And then we're going to look at it with a microscope. So again, it's a little gimmicky, but if you're a note taker, that's what I'm going to try to do. So let's begin at 10,000 feet. Uh, whenever you read a book, and I mean any book... Uh, there are certain features that alert you to, uh, to adopt a certain reading strategy. Like, just for example, if you pick up a book and it begins with the words, once upon a time, like you have a basic idea of how to interpret what follows, right? It's a, it's a fairy tale. Well, to the original audience, they would have understood uh, this particular work, the Gospel of Mark, as a biography, Right? But it's not a biography in a modern sense. It's an ancient genre called a bios. Now, usually this consisted, bios is consisted of following the life of a hero, this ancient genre. Uh, after a brief intro, the biography will include carefully selected stories and dialogues and special events to help the reader feel a certain way about the person uh, that's uh, receiving this biography, right? So usually the genre would end with a description of the unfortunate details of the hero's death, right? That's how the, the genre works. What's interesting in the Gospel of Mark is that not only does he describe Jesus' death, but Jesus' death is featured as his life goal and purpose, like, there's nothing. Like, like, what? Like, there's nothing like this in, in antiquity. No one writes stories like this. It's critically important, according to Mark, that we understand this biography as the speedy march to a cross. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus' death, his death is not incidental to his purposes. That, in fact, his glory... However countercultural it was, the king's glory is tied to his death on a cross. Now, why is this such a point of emphasis? Well, the Gospel of Mark is written in about the 60s, right? Uh, that's about 30, roughly 30 years after Jesus um, Christ has died. So it's about 30 years after, right? Uh, 60 years after he was born. Many of the original uh, witnesses were beginning to die. Uh, and so what was happening is the apostolic uh, community, under the power of the Holy Spirit, began to record these events so that like false narratives about Jesus would not thrive. And now additionally, according to Tacitus, Christians were being massively persecuted by this new emperor in Rome. His name was Nero. And every Jew knew 
um, from the Old Testament that God would send Messiah, right? God would send his Messiah, his anointed one. So the word Christ just means anointed one, and that Messiah would come to free Israel from their oppressors. So they were waiting for this new, this new David, this new King David, the Davidic king who would come and do a new, have a new exodus like Moses, right? And just like Moses freed Israel from their oppressors, they believed that God was going to do that again. So in verse 1, you'll see there, Jesus is called the Son of God. Now, in this case, it's not referencing Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. In this case, it is a title that's used in the Old Testament to describe the heir apparent to the throne of David. So here in verse 1, Jesus is being identified as Messiah, as the promised one from the Old Testament. The problem is, is that absolutely no one had categories for how a crucified king, right, a murdered king, could possibly accomplish the mission of rescuing people. Right. But if you pay attention, John Mark, who writes this gospel, is going to tell us how. The people of Israel, right, they're getting weary. They were afraid that Messiah would never arrive. Now, there were these other pseudo-Messiahs, but as soon as they would come up, they would be squashed by Rome. And to make matters worse, God had not spoken to his people for 400 years. In other words, the, the, the prophets of Israel had gone silent. And that the silence of God was unbearable. Would this new exodus happen? Would this second exodus happen? So verses 2 and 3, Mark cites the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, and he says, guys, it's happening. Like he's saying, this is that. A forerunner is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And then John the Baptist appears, and he's like this new Elijah. And he's like the most curious character, right? He's super not, he's like not trendy at all. He's not mainline. He's not like uh, assimilated into his culture. So John is different, and he is offering people freedom from their slavery. And in that day, if you wanted to join God in this new exodus movement, similar to Israel, you had to pass through the waters that John was offering, his baptism. That's what's happening in verse 4. So John is the prophet of God. In that time, just as a frame of reference, the only people who were baptized were pagan converts to Judaism. Right? Those are the only people who went through the waters of baptism. But now, starting it with the arrival of Jesus, everyone has, everyone, Jew, Gentile, has to repent, has to give up their dead religiosity, and pass through these new baptismal waters. And so in chapter 1, you're seeing baptism being instituted for everyone. And just like Moses in his Exodus movement, just like he had to pass through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, Jesus as the leader of this Exodus movement, is, being, is passing through baptismal waters. Now, John's kind of signing up for the job, so this makes him a little bit nervous, right? He knows he's about to have this encounter with God himself. 
And so he says, right, verse 7, he's like, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. He says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, like with fire, right? So John the Baptist knows what's up. Like the promised king, God himself, has come. But here's the thing. The baptism of Jesus is different than what you think about with baptism. So it's like Jesus is not repenting of his sins and then receiving himself publicly in faith through baptism, right? That's, that, that, that formula doesn't work, right? Every Jew knew that a Jewish king had to be anointed by the prophet of God. Samuel did it for David, and now John will do it for Jesus. Jesus needs a coronation ceremony. Jesus needs this official anointing. And indeed, God provides it for him, offers it. So the baptism of Jesus is Mark's way of describing the crowning of sorts of the world's new and rightful king. So this is a coronation ceremony that you're seeing in chapter 1. Jesus is the rightful king, and not just of Israel, right? Like of the whole universe. He's going to bring liberation to every person who knows needs a rescuer. A savior. And just like Israel, when they were being freed from their slavery in Egypt, they, had, they passed through the waters. And where did they end up when they passed through, through those waters? Where'd they end up? In the desert, right? Verse 12 and 13. Look what happens with Jesus. And he was in the wilderness. This is right after his baptism. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So just like Israel was in the desert for 40 years, similarly, Jesus goes to the desert for 40 days. And, and just like Israel totally blew it in the Old Testament, y'all remember that? All their grumbling and complaining against God? In juxtaposition with Israel, you have Jesus, who was obedient. So already in chapter 1... We're seeing Jesus live the life that Israel should have lived, right? We see Jesus living the life that we should have lived. But like Israel, we blow it too with complaining and grumbling. We see Jesus living this life. And we need a rescuer. We need a savior. We need a king. And Mark is saying, I know one. I know one, the son of God. And he just got his crown. That's how the biography starts. That's how the biography starts. So that's 10,000 feet. How are we doing? Introduction sermon, everyone. All right, okay. So now let's go to the ground level. All right, so we saw Mark 1 at 10,000 feet. Let's inspect this text at the ground level. Now, at this point on the ground, the world doesn't look like a map anymore. Now we can start, we're seeing the trees, right? So there's two features I want to bring to our attention. Feature one. If we were on the ground, there's a few things that would have stuck out. For starters, uh, John the Baptist's fashion sense and his crazy diet, right? Like, why does Mark describe him in verse 6 as wearing camel hair and eating locusts? I mean, like, who does that? Now, 
You, when you read that, what you're not supposed to say is, oh, he was just an uneducated, primitive person in the first century, and they just did weird things like that in ancient culture. No, they didn't. That's weird. Eating locusts was weird back then, and it's weird today. It's always been weird, right? Um, so John Mark, the author, he's highlighting these details, and let me tell you why. He wants to make sure that you and I, as the reader, understand that, that John the Baptist does not belong to the religious guild. In fact, the religious people of his day were just as oppressive as Rome. John the Baptist does not answer to them and made him an outsider. John's life of obedience was lonely. It was a hard life. And John's obedience was costly too. So following Jesus took a toll. And in fact, already chapter 1 verse 14 we are told that John the Baptist gets arrested. So chapter 1, things get real quick, don't they? John the Baptist loved Jesus. John the Baptist obeyed Jesus. And we live in a culture of easy Christianity that says, if you obey Jesus, he is going to give you these waterfall blessings, a happy life, a perfect marriage, everything's going to work out. That's what we believe. It didn't work out for John the Baptist, did it? John loved and obeyed Jesus, and he had his head put on a platter. Listen, Mark is giving us the biography of Jesus because he wants you to fall in love with him and to obey him, but don't just walk through that door too casually. Following Jesus is not easy, and it takes a whole lot of courage. You might say, well, that was just John the Baptist. In the story about Jesus, okay, well, what happens, what happens to Jesus? Jesus obeys God, he's, he's baptized, and then what? Look at verse 12. This is harrowing. The Spirit, God's Spirit, immediately after his baptism drives him into the wilderness. In other words, God took him to that place. God's the one who took him to the wilderness. Like, the wilderness is this place of testing. Like, there's wild animals and Satan there. I mean, of course, there were angels ministering. That didn't make it easy, though. And through John the Baptist and Jesus' experience, Mark is giving us a glimpse of what awaits us, church. What await, This is for you and for me. We're invited to see ourselves in this. There's a second feature at ground level. It would have caught your attention if you were there. As, I, as mentioned earlier, John the Baptist insists that everyone must know, and there must be no doubt that Jesus is the true Son of God, the promised Messiah. And so John takes Jesus to the, to the Jordan for his anointing, and then what? It says, all heaven breaks loose. Like, seriously, like, heaven breaks loose. There are these two amazing things in verse 10. Look there. First, Mark says that when Jesus comes up from the baptismal waters, that the heavens opened up. All right, let me nerd out for a second with you. The Greek verb there is schizo. Now, that word means nothing to you because you don't know Greek, except for Ty, he knows Greek, and Jason. But it's not the word that Greek guys would expect to be there. Let me give you an example. In Ezekiel, 
1 1, the, the, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, he, Ezekiel talks about how the heavens open up there too. But you don't get the word schizo there, right? The word that you get there is like a door that can open and close, right? Something like that. But here in verse 10, it's describing the heavens ripping open. In other words, what is ripped cannot be closed again. Like something cataclysmic is happening in chapter 1. Heaven itself is like breaking into our world. See, think about this. Heaven is the domain where God is. And heaven is ripped open, and we're left with the anointed Son of God, and earth will never be the same again. It gets even more interesting. Mark describes the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, right? So we're still in verse 10. See that? Holy Spirit like a dove. Now it doesn't say the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. There's no dove. It's like like a dove, right? What Mark is doing there in chapter 1, he's describing the Holy Spirit in a way that get, gives a symbolic echo to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So do y'all remember in Genesis, the Holy Spirit being described as hovering over the dark and formless void? Y'all remember that? So that word hovering is the word to describe like a bird fluttering its wings. That was the initial work of the Holy Spirit creating and forming like the entire universe. And Mark uses that same imagery when he depicts the Holy Spirit as if it were a dove fluttering its wings. But this time, instead of creating, it is recreating the entire universe through Jesus Christ. The heavens are ripped open. The kingdom is breaking in. And earth will never be the same because it is being recreated through the Son of God, the King. Now, if you are a careful reader of this sacred biography, Mark is writing all of these details to create like this conspiracy of love to like grab your attention. If you were on the ground, you would have been forced to ask yourself, could this be true? I mean, will the blind see? Will the captives be set free? Can the guilty be redeemed? Can the harshness of this world be reversed? Is Jesus truly who he says he is, the Son of God? If he is the king of the universe, if he's the king of the universe, what does that make me? Am I a soldier in an, a, a, an enemy's army, or am I the subject of this king? And this leads me to the very last part of our investigation. We looked at 10,000 feet, ground level. Let's evaluate this text with a microscope. I had a professor in seminary, since Dr. Anthony Bradley, uh, some of you might probably even follow him on Twitter or something, uh, I learned so much about this part from him. And it, he says, listen, when you, read, when you and I like read this text, um, you're not reading this as a first century Jew, you're reading this as 21st century Christians, right? And let me say, if you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, really glad you're here. In this next section, it's so relevant for you because you get 
to examine Christianity from the inside. Like, this is inside talk. It's amazing. As Christians, you know, I've got to get this. As Christians, we are men and women united to King Jesus. And here's what you're invited to ponder. When Jesus comes up from those baptismal waters, he is met with these precious words of love and validation and blessing. And he's given these words before he ever even takes one step of his mission and work. And what does he hear in verse 11? You are my son, my beloved. With you, I am so pleased. If God is saying this to Jesus, and if I am united to Jesus Christ, then perhaps because of my union with him, when God makes this declaration to the Son, perhaps it applies to me. That God can look at me and say, Ronnie, my beloved, with who I am so, so pleased. You know, many of us, maybe not everyone, but so many of us, when you woke up this morning, your greatest struggle was to believe that God, your Father, is pleased with you. That he's pleased with you. Just because you are his radiant daughter, his valiant son. You are those things because you're united to Christ. Listen, the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ are not simply that we get tickets to heaven when we die. It's not just assurance. It's not just something that's relevant to us when we die. The gospel actually gives you and offers you the status and this identity in this moment. You are an adopted child of God, one with whom the Father is so, so pleased. And when we don't live into this fundamental fact that we are adopted and united to Christ, that the Father is just nuts about us, that he is pleased with us by virtue of our union with Christ, then we start living lives inconsistent with our destiny, one that we're going to have for eternity with God. Over the years of being a pastor, I don't know, 15, 16 years, I have grown convinced that unless we can understand the power of this voice, this voice that bestows blessings and love and affection, we will struggle to live lives of restful obedience. And that's what I long to see in you and your children. Unless this reality like ruminates and ferments in your mind, your soul, your heart all the day long, you will not be free to be the person that God instructs us to be. In verse 11, the voice of the Father breaks in to the place where Jesus is baptized, and this voice speaks publicly so that 
everyone can hear. Everyone, the whole audience, the whole crowd, saying, this is the one, the king, the beloved, my beloved, and with you, I'm well pleased. That's an incredible thing for God of the universe to say. Like, no Roman religion could even imagine God talking like this. I mean, we don't even have categories like that for us in our culture today. I mean, are you sure that these could be the words of the God of the universe towards me? This is a public pronouncement in front of all those witnesses, clear, so the whole world knows how God feels. For centuries, Jews told about this mysterious messianic king who would come to to fulfill the redemption of the cosmos. And the voice says, this is the one, my son, the son of the father, son of the creator. And the voice comes down for all to hear. It's a voice. In other words, it's words. Which voice is this? Which voice is this? This is the same voice that spoke into existence the entire universe. This is the voice that spoke to patriarchs and established covenantal promises. This is the voice that spoke to the prophets telling them of the coming Messiah. The voice speaks again. This is my beloved son with whom I am so, so pleased. And for men and women who surrender to Christ, they are united to him. And they become co-heirs with Christ. Recipients of the power of this pronouncement of status and identity with the Son. My goodness, like, you don't believe it. I want you to believe it. We look at the mirror at the end of the day. And instead of, like, unpacking the beauty and the majesty of this reality, you know what we do? We unpack our past of what we've done or what others have done to us, and we stay there. And with skepticism, we say, "Ah, no, there's no way, none. There's nothing that could garner that kind of pleasure in me from God. That word beloved in the Greek is a special word. It's agapetos. It's translated beloved. It carries this range of meanings, this esteemed and worthy affection, this deep, intentional, directed love that only occurs in parents and their children, and it is solid and binding and unbreakable. Why did God tell Jesus this? Why was it necessary? Well, it was for Jesus, but it was for the witnesses too. It's for us. Children, and even Jesus, they need to hear their Father's blessing and joy over them. Nothing, nothing is more powerful than 
parental affirmation. And nothing is more devastating than when we hear the opposite, that you're not the beloved son or daughter. You know, in the home that I grew up in, you can imagine the kind of music we listened to. It was like Mexican, like mañanitas and things like that. That's the kind of music we played in my house. Let me tell you what we didn't listen to, Johnny Cash. Um, but I became so interested in Johnny Cash when I watched that movie, Walk the Line. Did y'all watch that? It's a biography of sorts about his life. He was an amazingly like, gifted yet hurting man. So as the story is told, Johnny Cash's life was traumatized by the most unfortunate event when he was a young guy. His, his older brother tragically died. And as the movie depicts it, Johnny was not present. But possibly if he were present, maybe he could have helped his brother and his brother wouldn't have died. Presumably his presence would have avoided his brother's tragic death, right? And in the movie, there's this, oh y'all, gosh, this heart-wrenching scene. After the funeral, the family is in their house. Everyone's still in grief. And the father, in his grief, grabs this, like, this empty can. And he marches to the young Johnny Cash. And he starts shaking it violently, right? And he screams at young Johnny Cash, You hear that? You hear that? It's nothing. And that's what you are. Nothing. And the father's sadness is like filled with rage. And so the wife has to like intervene. And finally he hurries to the door. And as he's leaving the house, he screams at his son. He says, the wrong son was taken. And if you know much about Johnny Cash's life, he spends the rest of his life reaping the pain of that trauma. Right? Not the trauma of his brother's death but of his father's voice. He lives his life deeply wounded and nothing, he, and he does nothing more than just trying to earn his father's love. I mean, all of his successes were about one thing, wanting to fill that void. And it exhausts him. It exhausts him. Listen carefully. Our text this morning, it ends in verse 15. And it says in verse 15 that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom has come. It says, repent and believe the gospel. Believe. Like, why? Like, what are we saying when we say believe? You know what we're saying, y'all? We're saying... That Johnny Cash's father was wrong. That the right son died. That he marched to a cross for you. That his death is what puts everything in right relationship to God. That's the movement of the kingdom. No more exhaustion. So now we are just left with joyful obedience. Because he lived the life that you should have lived. And he also died the death that you deserved. The right son died. So that when you hear the voice of God, when you hear his voice, what you would hear is not guilt, but blessing and affirmation, love, affection. 
You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my beloved with whom I am so, so pleased. Believe those words, church. Amen. Amen.